The kings of metal! listening to Metal Up, your podcast, with your host, Clint Wells. All things Metallica. Hey, this is Jay Weinberg from Slipknot. This is Chad Z, roadie for Metallica. Mick Wool. Michael Wagner. Jimmy Clark. Lars Ulrich, drum tech. This is Johnny Z. This is Joe from Bukasa. Adam Dubin, director of Year and a Half in the Life of Metallica. Hey, this is Rob Dietrich, master distiller for Black and American Whiskey. Hey, everybody, I'm Lizzie. And I'm Joe. We're from the band Hailstorm. This is Ray Burton, and you're listening to Metal Up Your Podcast. Episode 373, what's up? Welcome to Metal Up Your Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Wells, from Nashville, Tennessee. Hope you're all doing well out there. A day late, and my regularly scheduled Metallica programming is going to have to wait a week, uh, because Morgan and I had to fly out to Idaho, do private a couple of private gigs for our friend Gordy, who puts on a, a really wonderful musical festival called Howie 30 in uh, Filer, Idaho. And he's become a really good friend of ours, really close with Morgan, and... Uh, we did a, you know, we've got to go spend some time with him, play a private gig for him and, and uh, the people that work with him. It was, uh, it was a fun trip. It was a good trip. Long flights, but it was a good trip. And I'm back now and settling into uh, family time. My world's about to get crazy, dudes. Uh, March 1st, I fly out to Phoenix where we are doing a show with none other than Dave Matthews. He's headlining the big main stage. We're headlining the second stage. So I've already arranged it with the festival organizers and with some of DMB management to where as soon as we hit our last note, there's going to be uh, transportation waiting for me to take me to the side stage to the David J. Matthews Band, which uh, those of you who know me well know how excited I am about that. Uh, but after that, we go to Hawaii. The full band goes to Hawaii. Then we're going to be in Australia for 10 days. Then Morgan and I are doing a two-week tour. We just announced, by the way, Alex Deason, lead singer of the, one of my favorite bands, The Damwells is going to be opening the acoustic tour. And I invited him to come on our bus with us. So he's going to be riding our bus with us all throughout America, playing these acoustic shows. I get to hang with him, try not to bug him too much about the damn wells. Uh, but, he, you know, I found out he's a basketball fan. So uh, I think he's a, he's a Brooklyn Nets guy. So uh, we'll be able to talk about basketball. Um, I did this really fun conversation with my buddy Jamila for her podcast, which is called Music and We. And she invited me to, to be on it. And, and uh, I've done several of these things. They normally turn out kind of cool and they're fine. This conversation I thought was interesting and really fun. And I asked Jamila if it'd be okay if I posted this as like a bonus episode for Metal Up Your Podcast. To which she generously agreed. Um, so I'm going to have links down below where you can find Music and We. It's a podcast that she does. Uh, but here's what she writes about Music and We. We are organizers and we love music. We love to talk about the joy that music brings, but also what lies beneath, beside, above, and inside, not afraid to address political, spiritual, or the ideological. We examine what inspires us and others. Thanks for joining us. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, I mean, Jamila is a friend of mine who I've met through the show who I actually know in real life, uh, very passionate about music, very interesting, smart woman. And so, of course, this conversation was going to be cool and surprising. Um, I'm going to release part two in a couple of days. 
part one is really cool. I mean, we we break it up and I put some music throughout, but you know, she asked me some great questions. I get to talk about like reflections on becoming a dad and like what fatherhood's been like for me and how it's changed me and what it's like balancing touring life with family, who my favorite writers are. I got to talk about Raymond Carver and Charles Bukowski. Um, we had a really great conversation about like finding love, what it means to be an artist, how I got into playing guitar. We got to talk about Hank Williams. Just a really fun first part of the conversation. Now, the second half, uh, we do do a lot more Metallica talk. But I do think the conversation is cool. If you want a window inside of my world, you're going to really learn a lot about me if that's something you're interested in. If not, I totally get it. It's no big deal. But this is what we're putting out today. And I'm not even going to bullshit you guys with more housekeeping. Uh, all the links down below if you want to check out Jamil's podcast called Music and We. It's wherever you get podcasts. It's on Spotify and the podcast app and all that stuff. And uh, I'm going to leave her email address too if you want to get in touch with her because she has people on about, you know, you know she's, she's doing interviews about Fugazi and, and Bad Religion and a bunch of the punk rock scene. But then also about Michael Jackson and about Tina Turner. So uh, I think she's looking for guests and interesting people to talk to about music. So all that information will be below. My email address is show at gmail.com. You know how to get a hold of me. And uh, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And I will see you on the flippity floppity. Peace. I can't talk about it anymore. It's giving me a headache. Here, take two of these. Ah, new print. Little, yellow, different. I'm always interested in when people first learn that they're going to be a parent. What? sort of ranges of emotions did you experience when you first heard that news? Did you experience a typical reality, sort of the faces of grief that people experience? Or was it supreme joy? Or was it a combination of all of that? Was there trepidation? Were there any reservations you had that melted away once you got to see and hold what could be seen as a material expression of love? Wow. Well, no, it was pretty horrible news for us at the time. Um, mm. which I think that happens to a lot of people. I don't think that's actually represented enough in these conversations because uh, my wife and I were smart enough to know how it was going to affect us. I mean, it was going to change everything forever. And I was 29, my wife was 27, and we were in what I would describe as a rocky patch of our marriage. Um, we had been together for a while. We just moved to Nashville and we'd been in Nashville for a couple of years. We bought our, like things were moving but I think we were experiencing kind of the first big, the first big obstacle of of like you know the the serotonin, the dopamine's calming back down. I was traveling a lot. We just I felt like we still had more room to grow before we were going to do that. And she agreed. I mean, she would she would be nodding along with me right now. So when we got pregnant, it was a surprise, and so it was kind of a horrible evening to be honest. And and this is juxtaposed. I'll just jump ahead real quick for people who may not know me. I mean, my daughter's about to turn 10. She's the best thing that's ever happened to us. Like my family is in the best place we've ever been. So everything worked out <laughs> before people get too bummed here. But uh, it was, it was awkward because my mother-in-law was visiting from, from Huntsville, Alabama, who I love dearly. She's a sweet woman. And she just happened to be staying with us. And so we, we maybe couldn't act out, the news the way we might have if she weren't there but i'm also a very honest person that it's very hard for me to lie so uh isabel basically told me sort of mournfully hey you know i took a test and i'm pregnant and my first thing i said was we need to take another test just to make sure you know she's like oh, i knew you were going to say that and i already did that and it's also positive so this is happening and it was like 
Wow. And I think her mom was just about to walk in. You know, we were all going to go to dinner. And so we had a few little private moments. And man, yeah, I told her, I said, listen, I'm going to need to be sad about it for a little while. And uh, I said, but if you give me that time and let me grieve and be sad, I think I'm going to be okay. Like, uh, you know, I'm pretty good at just accepting. So it did, I took a few months, you know, it, it really did take a few months of me thinking one of the great things about having kids for someone like me that tends to be a little self-centered is it, it really was the first force in my life that forced me to care about something as much as myself, other than myself. My, you know, my spouse didn't even do that. I saw my marriage and my intent with my spouse almost as an extension of self-love. It's like, oh, this person makes me happy and I love them and I want them. So I'm going to marry them. The kid thing is completely different, you know? And, and, uh, so I did, you know, I did, I thought about it a lot and I was worried about what it was going to mean for me making music. And I was worried I was going to have to get off the road. And I just didn't know what it meant. I was just so naive when I think about that dude, but I put it all where it went and like three months in and she did her own version of it too. I mean, she was bummed too because we had planned to have kids, but this was a few years ahead of schedule. So, I mean, she was working in a restaurant. I was touring in rock bands. It just felt impossible. But like most families out there, you figure it out and it went great. You know, like I got it. We started to get excited about being parents. And now we, we talk about it and we're like, can you remember those two idiots we were before? Not that people without kids are idiots, but we were idiots. We didn't know anything. We had no money. And we thought our life was kind of challenging. You know what I mean? It's just so many, so much perspective that the kid brings us. So anyway, that's kind of a long answer to that. But, you know, no one's ever really asked me that. But it really was kind of a horrible dawning. And um, I think that's okay. You know, it, it's, I think we took it seriously. You know, I, I think people need to take it a little more seriously, actually. Um, it changes everything. And for us, it was for the better. And for me, it, it definitely, I mean, a lot of my identity now has shifted from, guy who plays guitar, guy in a band, guy who makes art, blah, 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 too. I'm a dad, you know, I feel like a dad first. And that's made me a better man. And even when I'm on the road as a, as a 40 year old now, I'll seek out other dads or, or moms, you know, if, if like women are around in my touring capacities too. And that's really what I want to talk about is uh, our kids, what it's like being parents on the road. And, and, and um, really what I talk about the most with other parents is, is grieving the end of it. Um, so that it kind of full circle almost. I, I have a lot of low level, low hum dread about, you know, not being my daughter's dad. I mean, I know I'll be her dad, but I mean, her becoming the woman she's going to be and moving on in the world and, and her starting her own family and, and have, being independent. You know, now she depends on me for everything. I'm her favorite person. And it's I've just been so wrapped up in it for nine, ten years, and I only got about eight more, you know, eight to ten more. So it's halfway over already, and so now I'm I'm kind of getting ready to be sad about that part, which is kind of poetic in a way, I guess. So you did talk about the ways being a parent has matured you. What ways has this experience birthed life into you? Hmm. Well, I didn't know I could love something so much. I really didn't. I might have said I loved my wife beyond words or I loved music beyond words because I do. Like I have this lifelong love of music and a very interesting spiritual connection to music that I know a lot of us have. And I love my wife. You know, my wife is, you know, she's she until my daughter, she was the most important person in the world to me. But 
nothing really prepared me for the love I have for my daughter. And it comes with a bunch of fear too. Like, man, if something happened to her, I don't know what I would do. Like, I'm not getting up and going to work. <laughs> you know, I'm not, pay- I'm not filing my taxes with TurboTax. You know, like the world would completely end if something happened to her. So there's like a lot of fear and responsibility in that, but that's the flipped coin side of the love, you know, like it just really... And you know what? To answer your question, I actually should have just answered it this way. It made me love other things more, you know, because my my capacity to love grew. It's not like I found hidden love and I was like, oh, this goes to my daughter. You know, it's like I loved my dogs. I loved my wife. I loved my music. But it's just that my heart grew. Everything grew. So I was able to love things more. You know, I even love music more, love films more, love my friends more. I'd be on a plane hearing a crying baby and I fly a lot for my job and I have for like 20 years. And, you know, you know how we all feel about the crying baby on the plane. It's It sucks. <laughs> you know, it's it's like one of the most unpleasant. Like, I think we're evolved to hear a crying baby and it's supposed to, you know, like an ice pick get into our psyche because that's how we survived in caves for, you know, 50,000 years is you had to hear your baby crying and, and to survive. And uh, but what it's made me do now is when I hear a crying baby on the plane, I'm not saying I love it because I don't like that sound. But I, I, I almost love the kid because this is a kid who's a human being just like me and you and their ears are popping and they don't understand what's happening to them and they can't tell anybody what's happening to them. And I, I feel like empathy for that in a way I never did. And I love their parents too because I know what their parents are going through. And everyone's like, well, can't you just make your kid be quiet? And sometimes they can't, you know, it's like I never knew that. You know, and maybe this, maybe you don't have to be a parent to like have that kind of empathy, but that's what it did for me because I, I was pretty self-involved before that. It just makes me love these people more. I have a, I have a friend who doesn't have kids and he's kind of one of the typical like, God, I hate kids. You know, they're, he, him and his partner are never going to have kids and that's great. I think more people should pursue that. But, it, you know, I would talk to him about it. I'm like, man, don't you hear yourself in that kid screaming? And like, because the kid is in pain or you know, and can't tell anybody. Can you just imagine it? And it's like, you know, how can you hate the kids? Like you were that kid. That was you not that long ago. Like, I know we're all in our mid forties now, but 40 years was not a long time ago. I mean, snap your fingers and you were that kid who just didn't have the tools to, to soothe. So anyway, that sounds kind of bullshitty, but I really mean it. I, I, I really, that's how it's really changed me and, and, and given me spark and given me more love and empathy. Oh, that's beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful that you were talking a little bit about navigating being a parent. You've touched on it in terms of that with your touring. So what are some ways you have been able to do that? Well, I mean, having technology has made it great. I mean, I got to say, being able to FaceTime my daughter from Paris, you know, (laughs) before she goes to bed is like you know, a luxury that a lot of people in my position have never had. So I try to be grateful for it, but it sucks. It's hard because, you know, there's a very small percentage of people in doing art, as you know, who are getting rich from it. So it's not like I'm shoring up an empire to give my daughter, you know, I'm just making a living and paying my bills and, and it it's what I love, but it also it costs a lot because it takes me away from what I love, which is my family and being home and and, you know, the, the further I lurch into fatherhood, I do have more, more dark nights of the soul wondering, like, am I making the best decision for my family? I just don't know anymore, you know, but it's kind of a little too late to pivot. And, you know, I need to go do my job so I can support my family. So, 
But those are the things I think about. And, and but the, you know, the thing is, she's never known me in a different way. She's never known me as a guy that that was home for a long time. I mean, we had the COVID years, which was really we bonded so much in that time because it was the first time I was home that much. And, you know, I was teaching her first grade remotely from our house and we were going on walks every day. I mean, it was really, we really made the best of that time in such a scary time for so many people. But she's always known me as a guy that comes and goes. And so it sounds cliche, but I try to maximize my time when I'm home. I try to really be present. I try not to be in my phone. I don't go out. I'm not extremely social. I mean, we, we spend a lot of time together when I'm home. It's not perfect, but it's that's kind of the rhythms that we get into. And my wife is super supportive, too, because all she's ever known of me in our relationship is me being gone, too, or me having pockets of home and away. So we have a pretty good muscle for it. I mean, I, f- I feel like we've been okay. I do feel like some of my dread about the parenthood ending is this guilt about was I foolish to spend that 20 years gone half the time? Mm-hmm. And really, I won't know that until it happens. I have a, a suspicion that it's going to be <clears throat> a pretty rough feeling, and uh, you know, hope and hopefully, me and Nova are friends, and we can talk about it, and uh, we can we can put it where it goes, and maybe I'll need to apologize. Maybe she'll have to forgive me. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I really am one of these guys out there, like you, and like a lot of my friends, that I'm just kind of doing the best I can. For sure. So. When people compare their songs, their creations to children, do you think that's something that's accurate now that you have been a parent for a while? Yeah. And you think that's the I think it's like we use all sorts of language to make sense of what we're doing. And I think it I think it's um, a metaphor is such a powerful tool that makes us different than any other animal, you know? And and uh, you can tell someone like my songs are like my kids and then we can immediately understand. You know, or someone, you know, I have friends who don't have children, but they are very passionate pet owners. And they'll say, you know, my pets are like my kids. Like they're, they're a part of my family. And there's an interesting enmity between, you know, parents generally hate that when people say, well, my dog's my child. You know what I mean? Parents really don't love that. And then the people that don't have children really don't like the parents being sanctimonious about that they got naked and laid on each other and made a kid like millions and people have done for like, it's not hard to make a kid. It does not make you special. You know, (laughs) a lot of shitheads have kids. Um, But I think there's going to always be a a division there where we're going to annoy each other. But I think right past that is uh, the use of metaphor. I mean, you know, it's like, I love metaphor. I love poetic language because it really like locks home something kind of eternally true about what we're all going through together. Whether you have kids or not, we're all just human beings that are going to, we're alive, which means we feel pain and we're going to die, which is sad. And we know we're going to die. And that's like one of the most horrible things ever. It's the price we pay to have comedy and art and music and laughter. Animals don't have it. Animals don't know they're going to die. Mm. So we're like the only species that kind of understands that we're in a game and it's rigged. And so with that comes great pain and irony and suffering, but also the ability to laugh at it. And so language like that is just useful, especially in a creative world. I mean, what would poetry be without being able to talk about the sunset and the sunrise, even though most of us should know the sun ain't moving. <laughs> we're mo- the sun stays. <laughs> we move around the sun. The sun's not rising and setting. It's an illusion. And it's beautiful, you know? So 
I get it when people say, well, my songs are my little babies. It just means you cherish them. You you feel ownership of them. And, and like kids, you have to let them go too. I think there's really great, useful, it's a utility to, to use poetic language. some writers outside of music that inspire your own writing or just people you enjoy reading 
man, I thankfully am out of the phase where I'm trying to write like my favorite writers. I mean, I went through a yeah. whole, uh, everyone has to do it. You have to do it. Like, I remember when I got into Charles Bukowski, I was writing poetry like him. And, you know, I got into Henry Miller because of Bukowski. And I wanted to write like all those like 20s writers. I wanted to write like Ezra Pound and Hemingway. And you kind of write, if you keep writing, I think you write out of that. And, and then in my own songwriting, a lot of my songs were like this guy, Ryan Adams, who's a sort of troubadourish singer-songwriter guy from New York. And a lot of my songs sounded like Ryan Adams' you know, B and C sides. Because I just had to write through it to find my voice. And I was always sort of reading, looking for a voice. In my 20s, it was like a lot of my reading was me trying to find something. And now I read less, but I read more purely. You know, like, so... I used to love this guy, Wendell Berry, when I was very religious. He's this agrarian writer from Kentucky who I love. But I'm the guy I read now is a guy named Raymond Carver, who's really similar. A lot of his writing is about family and about being outside, which sounds horrible. Trust me. I know. But it's just be- he died of cancer and he-, he wrote a lot about when he was dying and he wrote a lot about his daughter. And so I- I'm, of course, his age when he was writing a lot of this with a daughter. So I'm resonating with it. But, you know, I mean... I read a lot of like Clive Barker and Anne Rice and Stephen King and pulpy, scary stuff. I was a pretty voracious reader in my 20s. So I was kind of trying to gobble all of it up. Now I'm reading, I read a lot of nonfiction. Of course, of course I'm probably a lot like you. I mean, I've read every book about all my favorite bands, you know? <laughs> I just can't get enough. I've read like 50 books about the Beatles, you know? Any Metallica book I've read. I would probably say Raymond Carver now more than anything influences me because he moves me. And that's just a stage of life thing. I think in your 20s, you get all, you, yeah, 20s, you're, you're completely enthralled with someone like Bukowski. It's just such a shocking read. He's just such an ugly, kind of ugly and beautiful at the same time person. And he'll, he's just shocking. My favorite piece that he wrote it was a very short piece and he was talking about being on the train and he, he just had this conversation with this kid and it was so basic and I wish I could remember it you know, verbatim, but obviously I can't, but I just thought to myself, this is why people like Bukowski. It was so plainly spoken. Yeah. Well, he, you know, he's known for being kind of a womanizing boozy. Yeah. yeah. Um, he was kind of comes from the beat world but right. he was in california so i i find the beat stuff unreadable it was interesting when i was young but like ginsburg and kerouac i, I just i it's not for me it's, and that's actually the nicest thing i can say about it is that it I, it's not for me honestly bukowski all the pulpy stuff him gambling and shit i could do without it i really could what I love about it is kind of what you talked about, even though you can't remember the story, is kind of just how blunt and frank and plain he could be about human emotion. One of my favorite pieces of his is called Tabby Cat. And he's just mm-hmm. talking about this young boy, a teenager with these two teenage girls. And he's talking about how he's aged out of having really anything to look forward to when it comes to just enjoying. You know, there's a time in a man's life and maybe a woman's too, where you those pleasures of life are less available to you. Mm-hmm. And that's a big part of life. And this it sounds kind of shallow. It doesn't come off shallow. I'm not really doing it justice. But that's what it's called. It's called Tabby Cat. It's in a book of his called Pleasures of the Damned, if anyone wants to find it. He wrote a lot about cats. He was a big cat lover. And he would... Cats. I mean, I'm telling you, he wrote a thousand poems about him just being alone in a room listening to Stravinsky. He was a big classical music lover. 
and he would always have his cats around him and and just the loneliness and grief of the soul that's the stuff that i like now his love is a dog from hell and he wrote a whole novel called women and he was a pretty lascivious kind of gross guy yeah yes (laughs) but like most people who you know that wasn't all of him and it was complicated and i think a lot of that was punched up because he was actually kind of lonely and didn't have a lot of female interaction in his life so he dreamed up this world where he's a he's some sort of sex hero it's all kind of sad you know yeah it's very but i gotta tell you if anyone out there hasn't heard of raymond carver he writes he writes short stories novels and poetry and it's just uh man it's such beautiful stuff that's that's what i'm loving mostly but you know i I don't know about you but as i've gotten older i I read less and i've I've been Mm -hmm. trying to make peace with that because it's made me sad you know what happens when i read now i get sleepy that's like uh, the, yeah. it's the easiest way to, for me to go to bed early is like to start reading. Uh, well, I used to read three books at a time and yeah. post accident, I can only do one at a time now. Right. And I used to be able to, I, I was also a very voracious reader and I used to just gobble up a book. I could read a, a whole book in one sitting and now I have to do chapter by chapter. Same. And yeah, it's very interesting. I think part of it, is the influx of technology, the internet, all of these other figures in our lives technologically. I think that is part of it. I don't obviously I can't speak for you, I can't speak for everyone, but I think our access to all of these things makes books in general less appealing. Yeah. They, um also people read books online. I have trouble with doing that. I know people have Kindles, people have this. I need a physical copy of a book. I am the same way. And I I agree with you. I think it's, uh, you know, I was thinking about this last night. I was watching a basketball game and I was like scrolling on my phone while watching it. And and, Ah. uh, well, because there was like, there was like a forum of people talking about the game, but then like Mm -hmm. a commercial break would happen or a free throw would happen. And I would look at other shit. And my daughter came in while I was doing that. And I was like, oh, I don't want her to see me do it. I felt like a junkie, you know? Hmm. And I was thinking about like, you know, when I was like 23, uh, I had a normal day job and, and uh, I would look forward to getting off where I would come home from work. I would make myself a little dinner. And then I, w- I had this chair in my, I lived in a house with a bunch of other gnarly musician dudes in my early 20s. And I had this chair in my room. Like all I had in my room was like a desk, a bed and a chair and a couple of records. But I had this chair and I would just sit and read. Yeah, I would like read a book. I'd read a whole book, you know, and I looked forward to it and I would just read until I got tired. It, it just felt it was just a simpler it sounds so dumb it was just a simpler time and now i would say i'm pretty cognizant of how my technology is really bad for me mainly because i i don't want my daughter to experience it and i'm still sucked into it and i would consider myself slightly more aware of the dangers of it like i have family members that don't consider any of it dangerous i think it's awesome like why would you think your the phone's awesome what do you mean your phone's bad for you but my wife and i are like having actual conversations about like hey we need to codify some sort of ethic around like treating this almost like food like nutrition you know mm-hmm. and we're still zombies so it's like man we're fucked i mean I, it's hard to be optimistic about that <laughs> yeah. you know yeah i have time for myself every day where i sit and i don't use any tech like computers and i'll just sit and read so I made sure to have a commitment to do that. I also, when I am eating, I will read books. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there there are things that I set for myself where I'm like, okay, laptop down, none of that. Is it hard? And I, 
No, it's actually not that hard. And I honestly don't really look at my phone that much. It's over where sometimes I forget where it is. And then people will text me. I'm like, oh, okay. But, uh, well, I know we've all yeah. been in situations where for whatever reason we didn't have our phone and we like left the house or it mm-hmm. died or couldn't <laughs> charge it. And I think we've all by this point had the feeling of the panic when you can't. Because, you know, some of it's not bad. Some of it's like, I, I just want to make sure my wife can get a hold of me or yes. I need to be able to use my maps to get home safely or whatever it is. But after the junky thing fades, you kind of land on this like plateau. You're like, oh, not only am I fine, this is nice. Like I remember mm-hmm. doing something where I didn't have my phone for like two days, but I think I was with my family. So I wasn't worried about if they were okay. So I had that benefit. But, you know, like a lot of my work is like, I'll get emails and texts about shit that's kind of time, like, hey, can you send a mix of this? Or, hey, uh, are you available to write uh, for this? And and uh, so, I, I, you know, I'm kind of always connected to it because so much of my, like my wife's work ends at five. And right. after five, she's not checking her work email until 8 a.m. And I'm like, man, that sounds great. Like, I, I have this fantasy. Of <laughs> I have this fantasy of working at Home Depot. Like just quitting the music industry because it just seems so nice. Like I'll just learn everything about, you know, the, the, the dishwashers, the Bosch dishwashers. And I'll just help people buy dishwashers all day. I'll know exactly what I'm getting paid. I'll know exactly what my insurance is. And when I clock out at five from Home Depot, I'm gone. Mm-hmm. I'm not thinking about Home Depot anymore. But when I'm there, I'm here to help. What are you looking for? Yeah, the, the wood screws aisle 17 i would just learn what all the aisles are you know have pretty good memory like i you know i've been cramming like music facts in my brain my whole life and learning you know i was in a cover band for 10 years learned every solo every background vocal i could just delete all that information put in home depot aisle knowledge and then just work at home depot i actually fantasize about it sometimes how weird is that Given you have spent so much time as a touring musician, that does make sense. <laughs> I, I think that makes that would make sense to a lot of people. <laughs> I'm serious. It sounds nice. You know, it's it's sort of the grass is greener theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, True. Yeah. <laughs> Summer. It's like we miss the stars. 
A philosophical, I guess, question. So, do you think there's a space for anyone who wants it, especially artist types such as ourselves, to find the type of positive love one feels for a friend or a partner or child? This isn't a guarantee that everyone will experience this love, but do you think we live in a society that is open to the capacity of these types of love, or is it something we all have to work hard at in finding? Hmm. You mean like the love of like, yeah, a part, you mean just that, that, the deep connection of love? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think, I, I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not a philosopher um, <laughs> and I've read less than I did 10 years ago, but I think that's built in, you know, I think it's, I could really talk for a long time about what I think makes us special and, uh, and I'm not a religious person. So, you know, a lot of what's special about us has been explained by my religious friends as like, well, yeah, well, God made us a certain way. Actually, God made us kind of like him and his image. And that's why we're special. And I don't really have any of that, you know? So, and I don't know how we got to the point where we, we broke off, you know, from the other apes where we said, oh, it's sad when our, you know, we part, we, we pair bond and then our partner gets sick and dies. We're the only species that has funerals and, mm-hmm. and, and we build rituals around things like death and uh, birthdays. And, and uh, we understand that we're alive and we're going to die. And part of that is loving something, you know, I know that there are animals like elephants that are monogamous their whole life and that when their partner dies, they, they grieve, like, you know, they become depressed. Like, I, I'm not saying that we have cornered the market on that, but <laughs> I think that that's just a fundamental part, like the, the love and attachment that we feel and the way we do our families and the way that we long to even be with our families after death. I mean, that's what a lot of our mythologies are about, you know? imbuing meaning in the death and and then this idea that like well there's an after party and uh everyone i love will be there and i'll get to be young again and everything will be okay and i really have a lot of empathy for that and i used to be angrier about religion but on a person-to-person level i really get it and uh sometimes even wish i had something like that you know because my worldview when it comes to that is pretty tough I, i don't have a lot of really great answers for the big questions, you know, who are we and where do we come from and where are we going and what does it all mean? I don't, I don't really know, you know? So all I really have is this idea of like, well, you get your time here and you need to spend it helping people and not hurting people. And if you get to fall in love with things and, and love your partners or your friends or kids or pets, or you get to love your record collection, or you get to love your local community, or I think that's kind of the cream of, of life, you know, is, is, having that love. I think it's what makes us human. Ah, indeed. (laughs) So as you watch Nova, your daughter grow, I know you want to encourage her to find her own path. I know that you want to encourage her to explore things in her own way, to find things that give her joy. But for me, uh, writing and playing music were things that I've loved to do for a long time and still do. Uh, but no one in my family has a musical bone in their body. Did you have a parent or other adult figure or guardian in your family who encouraged to 
help you in your musical growth or your artistic growth? I had a grandfather who collected guitars. He, he wasn't really a great player. I think he collected guitars because he wasn't a great player. I think that was his way of, he just surrounded himself with great guitars as a hobby almost to sort of make up for that he could never really just sit there with a crappy guitar and play great. And he loved Hank Williams. He loved like kind of the great early American songwriters. He was in the Buck Owens and, mm-hmm. you know, Grand Ole Opry stuff. He was, he lived in Montgomery, Alabama. He was, he was the dude of his time, you know. He would take me to the Hank Williams Museum because <laughs> Hank Williams is from Montgomery. And there's a really cool museum there with like the car that Hank Williams died in and some of his suits, mm-hmm. like these, you know, those Grand Ole Opry, like crazy, like seersucker suits. And it's a couple of his guitars and cases from like the 40s and 50s and like a guitar would just have a hole in it like a huge hole and i I was like granddaddy what what's going on there what happened on the guitar and my grandfather used to go see hank williams in like pubs in montgomery alabama and he was like oh well i mean one second he'd be singing you know uh lovesick blues next minute he'd be smashing his guitar with someone's head in a bar fight because this was like (laughs) rough you know the south could be rough you know so he loved music but you know he was like a lot of grandparents of that time he didn't pay me a lot of attention he didn't even really think it was he he doesn't have tools you know like when i started playing music he i know that meant something to him but it's not like he would sit me down and be like dear grandson um what you're carrying on the lineage of wells men who love you know he didn't know how to talk to me so he would like give me a guitar you know or he would my grandmother would be like, Clint, come in here and play something. But, you know, when I was 13, I was playing Metallica song. I wasn't playing. She was like, you know any Pat Boone songs you can play? for?" I was like, I don't know any Pat. You know what I mean? And I would try to play like pretty passages from like Pink Floyd or like Dave Matthew. Like whatever I was playing when I was 13. <laughs> I'd probably play the intro to Fade to Black. Like something pretty. But he didn't know how to talk to me. And he didn't teach me anything really. He just, um, when we would go to his house... I mean, he would have have 20 uh, of these like vintage Martins and Gibsons just on stands and we weren't even really allowed to touch them. But that's one of my, like a very like, you know, fundamental memory of mine is just seeing guitars and, wow. and being drawn to them because they, he had these beautiful, you know, he had a couple of Martin D45s, which they're these really opulent looking dreadnought guitars that have like 900 pieces of like abalone pearl. They're, they're like shiny, you know. They're like $6,000, $10,000 guitars. He had a couple of those just laying around. And he wasn't even a wealthy dude. Like, they lived in a tiny little Montgomery, Alabama kind of bungalow type house. It wasn't, you know, I don't know how he did all this. You know what I mean? He was kind of smart. And I don't don't know. I really don't know. He's still kind of a mystery to me. He passed away years ago. But so that's all I had. I mean, my parents liked music. My mom liked Bon Jovi and my dad liked Pink Floyd. But they didn't even really know how to help me when I obviously expressed like deep interest and uh, you know, a a lot of commitment to it at a young age, the best I can say that they did is they never made fun of me for it. (laughs) And they, they tried to buy me instruments when they could. So like, you know, they would, they would scrounge up and buy me like the, the level up guitar, or if I wanted the Marshall amp that was as big as my friends down the street, they would save. And instead of the PlayStation that year, I would get, the Marshall valve state, whatever 30. So, and then of course now they love it. They come to all my shows and they think I'm a rock star. It's so funny. My mom will, I'll, when I was with Rodney Atkins, we would be playing like whatever the fucking 
frog festival in the, the whatever <laughs> county and uh she would rent a white van like a like a pa- 15 passenger like a touring van and she would get all of her friends and they would all you know come to the shows she would <laughs> she would ask for like 15 tickets i'm like mom that's not usual I, it's gonna be hard for me to get you 15 tickets usually good for two or three <laughs> but but she's proud of me you know like i think they were surprised i think they're i think if you ask them they'd be like well first of all not surprised because this kid was a little music maniac but be surprised that it panned out you know it's just such a tough you know if nova wanted to do it i think i would i think it would be hard for me because such a tough industry to really thrive in and i i want her to be successful and be able to take care of herself right isabel and my wife and i were even talking this the other day about like if she has a partner what's that person going to be like and we were like well we hope that they're successful you know like successful people not just financially but as people my reaction to that was like i want her to be successful on her own so that she doesn't need a partner so that if she wants a partner, it will be because that's what she wants and not because it's something she needs. So these are the kind of conversations we're having. And I don't know if music's, you know, I don't know if music's what I want for her. I mm. want her to be able to play music because it's something you can do your whole life and it's spiritual and it's, it's important. But pursuing it, you know, vocationally is a tough road. And I'm not saying she couldn't do it because she's a girl. It's nothing like that. It's like, I would say the same thing to a son. It's just such a tough road. Mm-hmm. But when you were looking at your grandfather's guitars, was that a moment that led you to thinking, I know you're, you're talking about your daughter, it's hard to pursue, but for you in that journey at that moment when you're looking at the guitars, did you say, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life or at least the majority of it? No, I never had one of those. <laughs> I never could, I could never envision the rest of my life. I still have this to this day, like long-term plans I find difficult to conceptualize. Like my wife is such a great counterpart for me in terms of thinking about like saving money and uh, man, she's just, she thinks long-term. She's like, yeah, but what about when we're 60? And I'm like, 60, I'll be dead. I've just always thought I was going to be dead or something. I I just never, Mm. I could never imagine myself 20 years down the line, you know? And, And that, that plays into like decisions I made about everything. Like, you know, pretty. I was a pretty bright kid, but didn't do well in school because I was like, "School sucks." What this? I want to listen to Pearl Jam. I don't. I don't care. I just didn't think about you know. And then when I was like, when I was college age, I went to a Bible college because I was just passionate at the time about that. And then I was in a band, and then I just went to community college because I just needed to get credits while I was goofing off playing. I just have never been good at that. So you know, when I would look at a guitar, or even when I started playing a guitar. I remember the, the one of the first things that someone showed me was my I had a friend who was playing guitar, but he was a lot better. He was like six months ahead of me, and he just wanted to play solos because that's what you want to do when you're a kid. You just want to jam, and he showed me the chords to Pearl Jam's Alive, which is four chords. It was like a 10-minute guitar solo, and he just wanted to play that solo. <laughs> that's all he... He almost selfishly was like, look, he threw a, a Taylor acoustic, his dad's Taylor acoustic in my hands, and he showed me E, G, D, A. And I, you know... I was able to change chords quickly and kind of have the rhythm, which meant I had an aptitude for it. And then he just went off. He was like, okay, he he spent almost no time with me after that, helping me get any better. 
once I could do enough for him to have his thing, you know, he was just wailing. And of, I, of course, loved him and, and looked up to him and loved his guitar playing. So I was like, I was just mesmerized that we were making it sound kind of like the record. And it just, honestly, literally from that moment to right now, as I sit here, it's kind of just been like the next step happened. And I was like, okay, cool. You know, like when I was 16, 17, I joined a cover band of dudes that were about 10 years older than me, but they were playing real shows, you know, in bars in Birmingham. And I was like, cool. You know, I don't know how to drive downtown. I'm scared. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I saw some gnarly shit because we would play from like, you know, 9 p.m. to 2 a.m. in downtown Birmingham, you know, with all the UAB students. It, it was like very college. And these the bars that I was playing in would lose their liquor license the stipulation for me is six at 16, 17 to be in the band was on set breaks. I had to just sit on a stool while these other knuckleheads are going out and getting drunk and meeting girls and doing drugs. I mean, I would just sit there and behold, you know what the life of like 22, 23 year olds was like in Birmingham. Uh, and it was, it was scary. Now, when I became that age, I was like, this is fun. This is fun as hell. But when I was like 16, 17, I was a pretty good little kid, you know? So I was like, it felt seedy underbelly to me, you know, but I would just sit there and play crazy train and work on the scales. And then when we were playing, we were playing, you know, Rage Against the Machine. So it was just, it was kind of like an interesting little masterclass. And like, I had to learn all the solos. That's how I learned how to play. You know, I'd have to learn the sweet child of mine solo. And the, uh, we were learning Prince songs and we were learning Coldplay songs. It was just a real hodgepodge of music. And, I don't if that turned into me playing for some like local Birmingham like singer songwriter people that were writing original music and then I was making records then I got looped into a van tour up in Nashville so I drove 3 hours up into Nashville scared to death didn't know anything about Nashville got in a van with a bunch of dudes who knew what they were doing and knew that I did not know. like I'll give you an example I was on a van tour in Florida and we were pulling into Miami and I'd never been to Miami I'd never really been anywhere and we're in a full 15-passenger van with a trailer full of shit, heavy-ass trailer full of gear. And uh, we're pulling into Miami at rush hour for a gig. And I was like, God, this is terrifying. I don't know how you're... I was talking to the guy driving. I was like, I don't know how you're doing. This is terrifying. And he just looked at me, and he pulled the van over, and he was like, you're driving. And he just threw me in. And I was like, dude, I can't do it. I'll jackknife the trailer. I'll destroy our gear. Like, this is a bad... I, I see what you're doing. This is a bad idea. He was like, dude you're driving period get in there total sink or swim and it was fine you know it was like and, if, and on that tour if we were in new york city we were in boston they were like make clint do it you know like i was lucky to have them but that was just another step then those guys became some of my close friends and then it was when you moving to nashville so then it was like i guess i'm gonna figure out a path to move you know what i mean and then i moved to nashville didn't have any gigs had a thousand dollars just going out and meeting people and that turned into a offer from Bob Schneider. And that, you know, it's just like, I never had one of those moments where like, you know, John Lennon famously saw Elvis in a movie. Elvis goes to Hawaii or whatever. And was like, that's what I'm going to do. I, I never had that. I, I've always sort of dumbly tumbled into whatever happened to me. And I had, I've had great women with me along the way. My wife, of course, especially, who uh, helped me make sense of it and stru put structures around it, like a retirement plan and uh, health insurance. And, you know, we're building a family and we bought a house and uh, we have a kid and, you know, 
I'm you should get you should get a haircut, you know, things like that. <laughs> Seriously. <What's... laughs> you should go to the dentist, what? you know, stuff like that. <laughs> my my wife books all my doctor's appointments. So would you say she's essentially your manager? <laughs> yeah. She's my day to day and my big picture manager. And I don't think she likes that role very much. I don't, I don't I think maybe she liked it more earlier. And now she's like, I need you to want to take care of yourself, please. Yeah. Well, you know, she's not looking for another kid. She she yeah. wants a partner. <laughs> but but she also I think, yeah, I mean that's kind of always been on the table though, you know, like I, <laughs> I haven't really changed much. So there is a point where I'm like, Well, you did marry me. I mean, you did love me enough to marry me. <laughs> Let's not lose sight of that. This was, I didn't force, hey, you know what happened? Seriously, I was playing a Bob Schneider show, New Year's Eve. I got engaged on on Valentine's Day of whatever year this was. So this was the New Year's Eve before that. I was playing a big New Year's show at the Paramount Theater in Austin with Bob Schneider. And my wife was there and she thought she was convinced I was going to propose to her. And I didn't. I got hammered. I was partying. Because I wasn't going to propose to her. So anyway, she's watching. So the whole day, she thinks she's, you know, this magical thing's going to happen. And as she sees me getting more and more drunk, she's like, I guess this isn't happening. And we ended up having a big fight about it. At, uh, that night, we were staying in Bob's guest room. And she was sobbing, crying, because she was so sad that I did not propose to her. And I remind her about that. I remind her. I'm like, you were once so sad that I didn't ask you to marry me. So let's just... Let's just not lose sight of that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Let's not let's not get too far away from that. I was a boy in Montgomery, Alabama. When my granddaddy gave me my first six-string guitar. It was beat up good, but to me it was a treasure. And I'd walk around singing songs in the neighborhood He said, son, well, a guitar, it's like magic And it'll take you anywhere, anywhere you want to go Most times, I just wanted to be there with him In that old garage, listening to the radio Garth and Willie After the fire's gone Conway Twitty Cash and Merle Klein and Pearl Loretta singing in my dreams I close my eyes Honey, it's like I'm flying And there's no one there at the Opry But you and me Well, I got out of school and I hit the open road And every record I loved taught me all I needed to know I'd be good, be kind, work hard, get a taste for whiskey And remember where you're from to get where you want to go Some nights I play to a hundred people Some nights well, it's only just a few I 
drive the van while the band is sleeping in the rear view Turn on the radio and I always think of you And Hank and Elvis, Garth and Willie After the fire's gone, Conway Twitty Catching Merle, Klein and Pearl Loretta singing in my dreams I close my eyes Honey, it's like I'm flying And there's no one there at the Opry but you and me Oh It's been years now since I heard your voice I felt the green grass in the yard behind your house Now I wish you were here And I wish you could see me now But some things take a lifetime to figure out Some nights they say the venues are all sorted out Some nights while well, I'm playing on a TV show But most nights I swear I just want to be there with him Picking guitar in that old garage to the radio With Hank and Elvis, Garth and Willie After the fire's gone, Conway Twitty Cash and Merle, Clyde and Pearl Loretta singing in my dreams When I close my eyes, honey, I'm flying And there's no one here at the Opry but you and me For me, it took me years. I started writing lyrics and poetry and essays from the age of eight, but it took me until my 40s to actually call myself a writer. Mm -hmm. And even though I play several instruments, I make music, I record music, I do all this stuff, I still struggle with calling myself a musician. I do not feel comfortable. And maybe it's a sort of, well, there are people way better than me who I would say are musicians. I just don't feel apt enough to do that. So is that something you've always been comfortable with, calling yourself a musician or artist? I don't think there were a lot of opportunities to to say that I was creative. You know what I mean? Like a lot of my friends were just making music. I had a steady girlfriend or I think, man, I mean, I got married when I was 22 to my first wife. So I kind of paired up. I've always wanted to just be paired up. I, I'm a sort of serial monogamous. I never, mm-hmm. I've never really done the um, casual thing. So I, I always really, the end goal for me was to like partner up with somebody. So by my early 20s, I, ha- I was married, my first wife, we were having fun. I was playing in bands. I was going to Bible school or community college, whichever. I can't remember. So there weren't a lot of opportunities to be like, well, I'm this or I'm that. And then in my 30s, I was living here in Nashville and everyone here in Nashville is doing that. And it's a rat race in that world. So if you're not talking about your writing, then what are you doing? You know, like 
people here talk about shit that they're not even doing. They're like, oh, there's a lot of bullshit here. You know what I mean? Because there's there's like a fake it till you make it. It's probably similar to LA and New York really too. You know, it's like, it's a very industry driven. And, and you know, if you don't believe in yourself, who's going to believe in you? And you just watch the bullshit artists like ascend the ladder. And it's like, <laughs> wait, wait a minute, but I'm over here being cool and humble. But no one's, my phone's not ringing. It's because people want to believe. I mean, I have this whole theory about... You know, I'm like, why do the bullshit artists succeed? And it's like, well, people want to believe that they are what they say they are. You know what I mean? You got some, you you know, the bullshit artists I'm talking about, like, oh, you know, the guy that asked you how you're doing just so that they can tell you what they're doing. Oh yeah. man, how are you? What are you up to? Oh, I'm good. I'm on the road, Morgan Wade. That's cool. Anyway, I got an Apple deal. I got a sync on an Apple commercial. I literally a guy Jamila at like the um. At the third Metal Up Your Podcast party, which we have in Nashville. So I'm posting about it and a bunch of my sort of non-metalhead podcast friends will come to those parties because they like me and they're, it's fun. You know, the parties are fun. This songwriter guy's like, yeah, I wasn't going to come to this, but I I saw it post on Instagram last minute. So what are you up to, man? This looks cool. You know, I'm like, yeah, I'm doing the podcast. And he's like, man, that's cool. I just got this Apple commercial and he's like telling me how much money he got from it. Like he immediately started talking about how much money he was making. And I'm like, dude, and <laughs> this is so funny. I've never talked about a lot of this and, uh, and I'll talk about it, you know, over a beer with my friends in town. I'm like, this guy will come up because he's really well liked. And I'm like, can you guys see what a fucking germy bullshitty guy he is? But, and, and a lot of my friends are like, man, I see, the, I see what you're saying, but I just, he's a great guy, you know? And it's like, man, people just want to believe it, you know, like the guy that comes in and just totally peacocks and like tells you his idea of himself, more people than not want to just believe it's true because it's nice. And I'll be damned if all my smart, beautiful friends kind of like this guy. It's wild for me. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, no, I'll, I'll refer to myself as a songwriter or, you know, a musician. I'll tell you when it feels the weirdest and it's not even for a reason you may think it is like if we are, filling out like insurance for Nova or like when we were enrolling her in a new school because we moved last year and they'll ask like your parents work. I don't like writing musician or self-employed. I feel like they judge me. I feel like they're like, oh yeah, dad's got long hair and an eyebrow ring and he wrote self-employed. He's a bum. And it's like, dude, I've, I've carried my family with my work, you know, in seasons where my wife was going back to school. And so that's a really small voice, but that is the only time I actually feel weird saying it. It isn't because I'm afraid that I'm not it. It's because I'm afraid of what uptight people's perceptions of it might be that I, I play Metallica songs in my garage while my wife works hard. It's like, dude, that is not the case, you know? And none of, that's all imagined. That's all just me being insecure. <laughs> well, you've been on all sides of this as a parent, as a spouse, as a performer, as a person seeing your friends do those things as well. So understanding the technical and logistical aspects of being on the stage and what it involves, how have you come to experience music as a listener and a fan? Is your brain now wired to detect any incidences on stage? And what are some ways you've learned to get out of your own way when it comes to that? Yeah, that's one of the things, like life's all about trades. And yeah, that's one of the things you trade, you know, when you peek behind the curtain, you've seen behind the curtain and that 
that's how it is. Whether it's a talent show at the local community center or it's tool at Bridgestone Arena, behind the curtains, the same mechanics. It's the same stuff. You know, it's it's just human beings who get together and they make a sound and people like it or they don't. And you need really practical things to happen for those things to work. You need electricity and you need a team and you got to set it up and it's got to be in tune. And so especially making records, you know, like when I, I remember I used to not learn how to play Pink Floyd songs because when you learn how to play a song, you hear the chords and Pink Floyd to me, there was a time in my life where Pink Floyd was like the, you know, they were just it. And I I considered their music like sacred or something. And I was like, I'm not going to learn how to play any Pink Floyd songs because I just want, this is when I'm like 14, total dummy, because I want to just, I just want to be able to just get lost in it. Well, of course I learned how to play all the songs because he's one of the greatest, great guitar players, you know, like you want to be a great guitar player. You should probably get your fingers under some of the shine on your crazy diamond a few times, but you just got to, work around it because that's what you trade you know like when i hear a record now i hear the compression on the on the snare and i think about the decisions that they were making sonically and double-edged sword you know like i'll never hear music the same as i did when i was 12 i just won't but i also hear it uh, new dimensions of it now that i try to enjoy and then there are times when you're right like you got to just get out of your head about it and just enjoy it a band like tool for me is easy to do because the music's so powerful I was thinking about it when I saw them recently. I'm like, you know, they have a singer, right? But all he does is sing. But I was thinking about the noise coming off the stage. I'm like, man, there's three guys making this. Like, that's just three guys making this sound. So that's a little easier. It, I guess it depends on what it is. But yeah, if a song comes on the radio, I'm, I'm thinking about the, I'll hear an acoustic guitar and I'll know how they mic'd it, you know, like whether they mic'd it with two pencil mics and stereo or whether they put a room mic up. And that's kind of a bummer. But it's no big deal because, I mean, really what I want to do my, the rest of my life is make records and make music. So in a way, almost anytime I'm listening to stuff, I'm learning. I'm thinking about, I mean, shit, I put on a, uh, I put on a Pete Yorn record the other day. It was a record I loved in like 2005. I haven't heard it in a while. And I was able to hear it with like 20 years of what I've been doing since then. I was like, oh man, I, I just could hear a lot about how they made it. I think too, that's why I love Metallica endures for me. There are those bands that I liked before I knew how to play guitar that will kind of take me there. You know, Alice in Chains, but of course, any Metallica record, especially Load and Reload. You know how I feel about that. I was going to ask you a question about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those records will take me there pretty quick. That's probably why I go to them so much.
a smile from a veil Do you think you can do? Did they get you to trade Your heroes for ghosts Hot ashes for trees Hot air for a cool breeze Cold comfort for change Did you exchange A walk on part in the war For lead role in a cave It's a person who creates versus being a passive participant in the musical experience. Have there been times where you felt your creativity was stifled because your role was simply to play without any input? You know, I always liked that part of it. Before I was given a lot of creative freedom, it was very much hired gun, learn the parts. Is that what you're talking about? Like just learning, yeah. learning it how it goes. I actually found a lot of comfort in that. And it's really great for when you're starting because... To put the creative pressure on top of it when you're young is like almost too much. Like I was writing songs, but they were they were bad, you know, in a charming way. They they'd be eight minutes long and not have a chorus. Like I just didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to edit. I didn't know how to get sections together in a clever way. It would just be like clunky, like verse one and verse one would be way too long. And then I, what I thought was a chorus, but the chorus didn't have a hook at all. It was basically another verse. And then like a really long reintro, like instead of getting right into verse two, it'd just be like another 16 bars, like the top. So then before you know it, the song's eight minutes long and doesn't do anything. So, so you basically wrote St. Anger. <laughs> <laughs> right. Without copy and pasting, it just actually wrote it. They were at least using computers and being efficient, but... But yeah, it was comforting when you're young to just say, hey, we're going to play Fade to Black at the talent show, which I did. And you're going to play the first solo. And my remember my guy who I told you showed me those chords and he played the last solo. We ended up being a little band together. But he's like, hey, you're playing the first part of Fade to Black. Like, we, he, you know, he would he was like a little band leader and he divvied out the parts. And that was comforting because it was like, I can get the tab book and I, I can. This is even before really like YouTube. There were like online forum, like um, there was a big one called Harmony Central that had tablature that you could print out, which I had to go to his house to print it out because we didn't have no goddamn printer. We weren't rich. And uh, 
you know, I could focus on it and learn it. Or like, you know, we, we, I remember we learned Hotel California and he's like, I'm taking the big solo, but then at the end, the solo splits into these harmonies and you're going to do the low harmony. And it's like in that environment, if I'd have been like, well, I want to spread my creative wings. I'd have been like, dude, what are you doing? Stop. Play it the way it goes. You know, we had a lot of pride, especially with Metallica in playing stuff the way it went. You know, if we could really nail the Master of Puppets verse riff, all downstrokes, not doing alternate picking, like we were honing in on that with each other. Like, dude, James doesn't alternate pick. You're not alternate picking. Don't be a wimp. Do it all downstrokes. We were like seriously... 14, 13, getting on each other's ass about downstrokes. And that, you know, that was a good time for that. And then, like all things, I, I mean, I, honestly, I still got friends doing cover band shit and I'm not knocking it. They're making money, but I'm really glad I didn't get stuck there. And I've actually had a few of my friends that, that are in that tell me that they feel stuck in it, you know, because at a certain point, you got to start b- trying to be creative and trying to do something a little different and finding a voice. I think because all your training, listening to your favorite records and learning how to play your favorite records. I mean, I, I could play the black album front to back, you know, to start the CD. That was going to be my practice. I was going to play the black album. And if I was feeling frisky, I would try to do the solos, but I was mostly the James guy when we were kids. But eventually you start improvising your own shit because you, to really do what they did, you have to find your own thing. You don't want to just copy that. They didn't copy their heroes. Right. They started their own shit, you know? So I like them both. There's something comforting about being given an assignment. Like, hey, this is what your job is. Can you do this job? Yeah. But I've done that creatively too. It's like, hey, can you write a song for Kelly Clarkson about she just had her second kid and she's 34. She's not ready to be done partying, but she's transitioning in a new part of her life. And I was with a female writer. Like, you guys, can you guys write that song for her? She's looking for a song like that. It's upbeat, you know, 115 BPM. Yeah, hell yeah. I mean, we can try. And that song never made it, but we wrote it. I mean, we tried it, you know, and it was fun. And I learned a lot doing it. I thought it was, I, I like assignments. I really do. I, I think there's like freedom in being assigned something. You, you have a freedom to just focus on it instead of like, hey, can you write a song for the soundtrack for the new Barbie movie? Like the, those songs that ended up in that movie, you know, it's not my cup of tea. I didn't love the movie. I wasn't as bowled over by it as most people. But those songs that Mark Ronson wrote, and that Billie Eilish wrote for the end credits blew me away and how they were structured, how they tied into the themes of the movie, how they, they made the movie better. And they're just good songs by themselves. I was like, wow, I like stuff like that too. If anyone's, if Greta yeah. Gerwig's making Barbie part two, I'd like a shot at writing uh, the end credits, please. Let's go. Here you go. If you're listening, you heard it. Exactly. <laughs> Come on. Click the right for Barbie two. Come on. I'll try it. It'll be a Lunar <laughs> Satan track. Yeah! <laughs> if you were our advisor, what would you say? Then I would say, delete that. <laughs>